Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, Hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses podcast. Hey everyone, this is Christian. Roger. I'm Nate. And I'm John. And we're Gamers with Glasses. And Gamers with Glasses is a website, www.gamerswithglasses.com, that specializes in all your video game content, uh, bringing together scholars, developers, fans, uh, artists. People of all kinds that are interested not just in playing hard, but thinking hard and talking and thinking about games in a way that's just smart but casual. And this is our first episode, so we are excited to have you on board, and we are just super excited to be able to share ideas about games with you. And for this first episode, uh, we're going to talk about what we're playing, we're going to talk about some industry news, talk about those new generations, new console generations coming out, we've got a topic of the week we're going to discuss, some non-game recommendations. Uh, but first I want to tell you just a little bit about what we have coming out later this month. So we're going to be on an every other week, a bi-weekly schedule uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, so expect another regular podcast in a couple of weeks, but also expect a podcast on immersive sim games. We're talking about your Bioshocks, your Praise, your System Shocks, your Thieves, or Thiefs, uh, your Deus Exes. Um, we're going to do that later this month. We're also going to have a spoiler cast on Spider-Man's Miles Morales, although I'm not sure if any of us are going to have the PS5 version. We're just going to be rocking the PS4 version um, with those 40-minute load times. All right, so without further ado, why don't we just start talking about what we're playing? Uh, so John, do you want to start us off with what you're playing? Yeah, I can definitely do that. So uh, my main game right now is Mario Odyssey. Uh, I've been pretty stressed out with the sort of global situation in terms of COVID-19 and then also the uh, domestic situation in the United States with the election. And I really just needed something that was incredibly competently made <laughs> and just devoid of any sort of stressful element. And I think Mario Odyssey is a uh, perfect encapsulation of everything Nintendo has to offer. It is exceptionally well done. It is is bright without insulting my intelligence or uh, sort of without insulting my intelligence. I'll just go that far. And it's just been a real breath of fresh air where I can take 20 minutes and uh, spend some time with Mario and explore that environment and uh, really look at all the sort of 
bright, shiny colors and uncomplicated material that I, that that game offers. And it is absolutely the, the, the best, I think, version of a 3D Mario that there is. So I've been really enjoying Mario Odyssey. Are you going for a full moon run? Are you trying to make sure you get every little odds and ends out of each level? Uh, no, that has never really been my gaming style. Uh, I've done it on a few games inadvertently just through uh, sheer force of play and the number of hours I put in. But that's uh, I'm not a Mario purist where I, I go for all the coins, all the moons. I'm just there to really take 20, 30 minutes and look at some bright colors and not worry about the state of the globe. Uh, my sort of secondary game that I'm playing with is, uh, Hades. I've really enjoyed it. I love the aesthetic of that game. Uh, I am not good at it. Uh, <laughs> I actively try to ignore almost all the mechanics that would benefit me in any way, uh, just because I didn't feel like reading at that point in that time. <laughs> so I've just been brute forcing my way and doing okay, but actively knowing that I should be looking at some of these mechanics and maybe engaging with them in any way if I want to progress. But I'm not ready for that right now. I'm a, I am have a toddler and I just don't have time to multitask the number of systems that game I think wants me to multitask. So uh, I've really been enjoying it and it's great. And I've really just been using it as a dog petting simulator where I can just pet a dog with three heads. Like I'm fine if I never progress farther than that. I have a dog that I can pet and it makes cute sounds and I'm, I'm really okay with where I've the, the, the point of stasis I've reached in Hades. Yeah. I I'm, I've been playing Hades too. And uh, I agree. Like I, I love the art style. I love the game. I've gotten to uh, Hades twice, but haven't beaten him. Um, John, have you played the different, uh, the different weapons or have you stuck mostly with the sword? Or... Yeah, no, I've done, I've unlocked all the weapons. I, um, really favoring the shield, the Aegis. I love that Captain America sort of rebound playstyle. Uh, it also allows me to just spam that attack button and kind of run around uh, avoiding all combat, uh, like a coward and uh and really engage from a standoff point but yeah no, I've, I've unlocked all the weapons i've met all of the main um gods and i'm just i just haven't gotten past the, the last i would say stage and a half i think i enjoy the game i think that like i kind of uh i get a little snarky i would say because this, this game has gotten so much praise and i think it's a great game um but it you know Christian and I were talking earlier about the previous game from this developer, Pyre. And while I think that this game is probably a lot more successful than Pyre was, I just really enjoyed Pyre's uh, attempt to do something totally different. Um, and I felt like they really sort of went back to their roots, which is fine roots, but um, ultimately it's less of an interesting game for me for that reason. But that's just me. It does have a feel a bit like, I've played just a little bit of it, but it does feel a little bit like their first game. I think it was their first game, Bastion, um, in some ways. That like sort of a little more beat em up, a little more sort of roll out of the way, dodge out of the way. Uh, but it also, I, I do, you know, I get that same feeling as you, Roger, where I'm just kind of like, so they made a roguelike after making Pyre. That makes sense. I can imagine that there was sort of like some strategic business thinking going on there. And it's obviously paying off for them, which is good for them because presumably their next game, they can just kind of like 
go batshit crazy, essentially, you know, because they'll have some funds behind them. That's true. That's true. Cool. Well, I, 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 I could talk more about what I've been playing. Um, yeah. I'm in the middle. I would say I'm probably, I would say about 10 hours into Wasteland 3. I have never played a Wasteland or a Fallout game before, and I'm really enjoying it. I am a huge fan of isometric RPGs. Um, I really love the sort of wackiness of Wasteland, the sort of satirical elements. So I'm currently fighting against this gang that call themselves the Gippers, and they're ruled by this giant Ronald Reagan artificial intelligence. That uh, and then they also have these. All of the women who get to a certain level in this gang are called um, are called Nancys. So that but they have different last names and they're they're sort of these crazy like um, leaders. Um, and and they're fighting against this this group of uh, of communist artificial intelligent robots that are trying to argue for their humanity. And so it's just kind of a it's kind of a funny sort of riff off of, you know, contemporary politics. I didn't, it's so funny because I'll get back to this, I think towards the end of the, um, of the show, but like I have kept finding myself reading post-apocalyptic literature, even though I really don't want to and playing these games, I don't want to have anything to do with the apocalypse right now. And yet I keep finding myself drawn back into these types of narratives. And so it's just really funny to to have to sort of say that again with with wasteland three so but i you know i've been looking for something that to tide me over until baldur's gate is more finished baldur's gate three and i haven't really played a really good isometric rpg since i would say divinity original sin 2 and so this is really sort of uh doing everything that a game like that should do for me and so i've just really been enjoying it my shout out game is bloodroot which is a totally wild game. It's a Wild West game, basically. And so you're this guy who's uh, been left for dead, um, and you're on this, 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 this I would say, uh, mission of vengeance against some unknown enemy. The thing that's really interesting about Bloodroot is that it's, um, it's very cartoony, and you can use anything as a weapon. And so you can pick up literally pick up almost anything on the screen. It could be a chicken. You can hit people with the chicken and kill them. You can, uh, sometimes it's a saber. Sometimes it's a, an ax. Um, sometimes it's a, it's, it's a, um, you know, a balloon. It, like it's, it gets really wild just in terms of what you're able to use in this game. And, and it's, it's quite humorous at times and so i've i've been interested in that too it's also one of those games where you you die in one hit so it's very fast and um yeah i've just been i've been enjoying that one as well are they like ranked like does it take longer to kill a person with a with a balloon than with a chicken each weapon has like a certain number of times that you can use it and some weapons you can use more than others i would say an axe you can usually use three or four times so you can usually get three or four hits in Usually with the chicken, it's like one hit and it's gone. So you, that's another thing I think that keeps it being a fast game because you're constantly searching for something to use as a weapon, which is kind of fun. I like that kind of environmental incorporation when you're 
doing those kind of action games. Like the environment becomes your weapon, or at least your sort of source of weapons. Yeah, and it's it's one of those games too where because you're hit with, you die with one hit. Oftentimes you're sort of, you you're sort of like, wait, what just happened? Because it gets that, it gets kind of that that crazy. So. Yeah. No, that that the die with one hit mechanic. I don't know why, but I've been encountering that a lot in part because I, I wrote up some impressions for the website on Ghost Runner, which is one of those dive with one hit uh, games, which I was a little ambivalent about. But I think uh, Brian Rejack, who's going to be reviewing it for the site, was stronger about it. But it's that like Hotline Miami style, you know, turn the map, turn the gameplay space into a puzzle in which you just have to be perfect, you know, and I don't know. I'm down with that as long as the reload is super quick. Like I need to be able to restart like the action just immediately. Yeah, I think it's an element of what you are playing for. If it if you're playing for a perfect run or a completest run, then that's absolutely the game for you. Or if you're me and it's just I'm trying to get through story, I'm just trying to get through content. Games like Hotline Miami, One Shot One Kill, they're just not going to be for me. I can't dedicate an hour to a single 30 second level that I've played through for 40 times. Those, those kinds of games really scratch the masochist itch in me. <laughs> I love games that really, I mean, I'm sort of a big Dark Souls person. I'm a big, I just love those games that really make me mad. And so, <laughs> and so I'm really in like Hotline Miami. Wow. It's just, you get to these states where you just don't understand how it's how it's going to work and then somehow it does and it's such a relief and i don't know i don't know what's wrong with me maybe there's just maybe i'm crazy no it is really relieving it's like you've uh, uh i mean this is maybe a little bit dark but it's kind of you know it's like you 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 solved something today you know like it, that I, I'm 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 in this ocean of things over which I have no control, but I got past the Hellkite Wyvern again. You know, like <laughs> that's that's something I I accomplished um, in in some world. There's a world where I get things done. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's masochism. That's really satisfying in in some way. Although those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think maybe the more masochistic element of the story was the amount of time you're spending near and with a Reagan cult. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it was, it was, it's so crazy. Like, yeah, he's kind of a Max Hedrum AI that is, is Reagan. Um, yeah, but I kidnapped, I said his, I said his consciousness free so that he can live in the AI world and away from these GOP crazy people. And I'm trying to kill them all right now, so. There's a conf... There's kind of a revenge thing in that, that that I really enjoy, where you're just like, yeah, take, you know. Anyway, I, I won't get too much into that. Reagan's really having a moment right now between uh, Wasteland 3 and Call of Duty Cold War. I think this is the highest density of games featuring Reagan in a while. I would probably since the 80s, I would imagine. <laughs> back since contra right um yeah at some point we get out we need to talk about humor in games and do an episode on that and talk about why is it that crpgs are actually pretty good at doing that you know about throwing you those wacky things those isometric role-playing games can just somehow manage to throw in the zany and have it work um nate what are you playing these days 
Um, well, every year I, in, in October to sort of celebrate Halloween season, um, I replay night in the woods. Um, and it was really different this year. Uh, because this was, man, the, this was, so this was the first year where I found myself no longer empathizing with the, with May, with the main character in the story, as much as I did with the jobless adults with whom she was surrounded. Um, like I remember, cause I have played this game every year since it came out in October. Uh, um, and I remember the first time I played it being like, oh my, like I, I really feel closely connected to this character who has just left college and has gone back to this little, you know, nowhere town, um, that's kind of, uh, drying up and, and getting lost in, in capitalism. And I thought, wow, like I understand that sense of lostness. And now I playing it through this time was the time where, um, there are certain mechanics where you walk past like, um, these two characters who are always standing outside this call center. Um, and they just have thought bubbles over their heads. They don't even really talk to you after a point. There's just, there's a thought bubble and, and one character has a thought bubble over her head with a cigarette in it. And the other one has a thought bubble over his head with a cup of coffee in it. And, and those two sort of, of figures, I, as I walk, would walk past them, I think like, oh, like that's me now. Like I'm not, I'm not this sort of central figure in this story anymore, at least when I play it. Um, I've been playing the early access version of Zelter, um, which is, uh, a kind of adorable, uh, zombie game. Um, it's done with sort of a, a pixel art kind of style and it's a, it's a top down, um, it's, it's a shooter, but there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of crafting. I've seen it described as like sort of Stardew Valley with zombies, um, and I'll be, I'll have a piece about that coming up here pretty soon. Um, and then I've been, uh, sort of the main game I wanted to highlight is, uh, Connor Sherlock's The Rapture is Here and You Will Be Forcibly Removed from Your Homes, um, which is a little 20 minute unity game where you walk around and there is a big rent in the sky overhead that basically over the course of 20 minutes slowly comes for closer and closer to you as you wander around this field um, that has like a, a sort of some, some electric lines and an abandoned kind of crumbling house in the middle of it. And there are some kind of sparkly things that shoot up into the sky. And if you walk into them, a voiceover will read you uh, one of four different HP Lovecraft stories. Um, and you can choose to sort of follow that around and, and listen to it like sort of a guided tour or just not. Um, because either way, at the end of 20 minutes, the, the, those same sparkling lights that play the stories will start to sort of fill your first person vision. Um, and then, you know, spoiler alert, but after 22 minutes or so, you just die uh, every time. 
Um, and and so it, it describing it now, it sounds a lot more kind of arty farty than it really is. Like I I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun wandering around and and poking at the trees and looking. Uh, l- listening to these to these stories, the voice actors that they got to do it were were really cool, um, and uh, he also has a, a Patreon where you can subscribe, and for a couple bucks a month, you can join the Walking Sim of the Month Club, and you'll he sort of will makes a walking simulator every month, and you get access to it and to all of sort of the past ones as well, once you once you join as a supporter. And they're cool, they're, they're really cool. I've, I've had a lot of fun sort of wandering around and just enjoying these things, but it is obviously like, that has to be what you have a taste for, is, is a game where you're not really going anywhere or doing anything, but just kind of experiencing an environment. But they're really nice. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about walking simulations. There's a reason there's a whole genre of them, right? And so, I think, um, uh, what is it, the Edith Finch game that came out a few years ago? Yeah, What Remains yeah. of Edith Finch. I really enjoyed that game. And it's it, it sometimes it, those games feel like palate cleansers to me. I'll be like engaged in a very deep game like Wasteland 3 or whatever, and I'll just want to like have this kind of experience that's more of narrative-driven more about the story, more about understanding what this world is that I'm I'm in the middle of, um, and I find a lot of uh, a lot of walking sims to be really good for that. And it's fun to see people using sort of the worlds of RPGs for these kinds of things as well. Like I spend um, a fair amount of time sort of lurking on the Skyrim Reddit, and there is a lot of just. Uh, what what I have no better word for than landscape photography. Like, that's what they're doing. It's just people more or less using Skyrim as a walking simulator to just kind of wander, and they, they take these albums full of pictures and then stick them on this Reddit page, and, and every you just you scroll through them, and you sit and you look at them, and you admire sort of the Ansel Adams qualities of, of, of Skyrim. And there's something kind of cathartic about that. There's something deeply weird about it too, but there's something really pleasant in enjoying the fact that this is a world that does not exist, that nevertheless has environmental features that are appreciable on the level of, of, a, of a national park or monument or this kind of thing. I don't know. I enjoy this quite a bit. My wife often uses Skyrim for a flower picking yeah. simulator. And you can catch the moths uh, and stuff too. It's re- yeah, it's mm-hmm. really relaxing. That's yeah. I mean Skyrim, that is a game that has had a life, you know, that continues to have a life and just the mod community. I mean I suppose that there is going to be another Elder Scrolls game. They've they've said there's going to be. They've said it's several years out. But I have to imagine that just the sheer gravity of putting out another game and they're finally updating their engine and, you know, putting my cards on the table, I'll be probably talking about one of the earlier Elder Scrolls games a little later on uh, that was sort of formative in my youth. Uh, but, yeah, this this notion of just being able to immerse in a world. I, I'm, you know, maybe I'll just jump in here and start talking about my games because I think this is probably a good as segue as... I'm going to get, which is I'm, you know, playing uh, Ubisoft's Watch Dogs Legion. Uh, and 
in a lot of ways the game is just my first trip to london uh <laughs> i have i've been to the uk for about 72 hours for a job interview at one point uh and it was a miserable experience for a job that i did not get uh but you know uh i've never been to london i've been to birmingham and coventry and you know everybody raves about london but also raves about the fact that you can't really afford to live there so i can live there in this game i can drive taxis around i can hack everything i can go in very few buildings which i would say is actually a legitimate kind of complaint there's a sort of you know maybe we'll talk about this more but there's a way in which there's a kind of mild, wide, and inch deep feel to the game in a lot of different ways. To be fair, if you go to real world London, there are also only a handful of buildings <laughs> that you are allowed to go into. You know, depends like, how resourceful <laughs> you are. You know, <laughs> they've got gates, they've got back doors. <laughs> um, you just have to have the will. Uh, no, that's a, that's a fair point, uh, Nate. And you know, but it's. It, I, I have to admit, I don't think I would have got this if Cyberpunk hadn't been pushed by a month. Uh, this was definitely, okay, I have a gap in my gaming schedule. I need to do some hacking, uh, solve some puzzles, wheel around a world that's interesting and near future, and that checked all the same boxes. And that's a very different beast than I imagine what CD Projekt Red will put out. But I've got to say that this is, it's a game that has taken some chances. This is, for folks that don't know, this is, you know, the third game in a series uh, where you play a group of hackers, dead sec. Uh, but what distinguishes this game, the sequel, is that you don't have a main protagonist. Instead, you have a team and anybody in the entire city is recruitable. And you can look up profiles on everybody and figure out their schedules and try to recruit them. And you have to do favors for them and help them out of a jam to recruit them. And you recruit different types of people with different skills. So I've been going around mostly, honestly, ignoring the main missions and just trying to see what the weird kinds of people I can get are. So I've got a spy, which I recruited in one borough of London. I've got a beekeeper with nano drone bees uh, that... You know, they can sick on people. I got a construction worker who is by far the most useful person because I get this construction or cargo drone that can basically take me to the top of buildings whenever I want. Uh, but all of this, so much of this is procedurally generated and that's where everything great comes from and everything awful. I've honestly never heard a game uh, made in the past five years at least with such laughably bad uh, voiceovers and at the same time such high production values because even the voices are procedurally generated to some degree. Like they do pitch modulation and this and that and it sort of fits with the different people um, and sort of doesn't. But it's weird. It's weird. But then you look up their profiles and you see things like this person has watched over 500 animes. Uh, they skeet shoot as a hobby, which means that they'll also have the ability to aim better. And they happen to have a moped, you know, and you'll look at another person. and They'll be like, they're an investment banker. If you bring them into your crew, you'll start making a little bit more money off of every transaction. You know, where the lawyer gets your crew out of jail more quickly. So it's great. It's a systems game. And if you go into it knowing the story is going to be okay, and it's pretty good, not great, but that you're getting into just systems and seeing what kind of mayhem you can start with it, 
right? You can hack every car, hack every drone, and just mess around with things uh, to the point where, honestly, it has made me want a little drone. And I'm going to resist my impulse to get it because it feels like a step away from that and getting recruited by the NSA, uh, which is not okay in my book. Uh, but, you know, I'm... Uh, it's got its hold on me. That being said, there is something, you know, a little uncomfortable at playing a game by a company, Ubisoft, that has had such really awful leadership problems over the past several years, sexual harassment cases that have often come from the top um, and from leadership. Uh, that's you know, making a game that's about raging against the fascist machine and leading a crew of resistance fighters. There's something like off-putting about that. At the same time, Ubisoft's so big that you've got just hundreds of people, thousands of people working on this game in-house. And so it's kind of, I don't know, I always feel weird about those big AAA games in that respect. Um, yeah. But that's this is the second game that Ubisoft has set one of their major franchises in London, uh, and it seems like it has a fairly similar, at least overtone, as Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Has there been any direct shout-outs in Watch Dogs to uh, that previous entry that takes place in London? Not yet, but it would not surprise me, because if I'm remembering correctly, and I didn't play the first Watch Dog, or maybe it was the second Watch Dog that had a shout-out to one of the Assassin's Creed games, and then the Assassin's Creed game had a shout out to them, so that they exist within the same universe. They've made that explicit. Uh, so wouldn't surprise me. And Watchdog Legion is set probably like 30 years into our future, or something like that. Uh, mostly the difference seems to be that there's a horrible privatized military uh, force doing all the policing, and uh, that advertisements have all become holograms that are just a little more obscene. Um, that's about it. Uh, but yeah, I've, I'll keep an eye out for the syndicate reference though. And then I'll just, you know, a couple shout outs uh, really quickly. I'm uh, playing uh, a game called Tenderfoot Tactics, uh, which is a tactics game. So like a strategy game with battling and turn-based combat. Uh, but it's made by a small team. I don't know how to s describe the game except like lo-fi polygonal 3D, uh, but also somehow utterly beautiful. Um, and you control a team of goblins. And it's, so it's a fantasy tactics game, but there aren't other races. You're dealing with like other goblins and there's a whole politics and there's this like fantastic invading force called the Fog, which is seems to be taking over other goblins. And you're there's all this like mechanical complexity in this game that is just astounding for a game that I think is made by five people. There's I think two programmers, a couple artists, and a musician basically. And but they have like the elements interact with one another on the combat terrain. So if like you use fire with water, it turns into steam, and there's all kinds of things like that. Um, and it's just a game with a lot of heart, and it's an open world game. And you fly as a bird or travel on a boat or on foot. And you just kind of navigate this beautiful series of forests on this archipelago. And I'm really into it. I'm just really intrigued by the kind of mystery of this land that's besieged by the fog. And by the mystery of how such a small team has produced such a 
beautiful game with such so few resources seemingly so you are a set of goblins but if you you know using your mouse wheel if you wheel up you turn into a bird that's flying over the landscape and you're traveling that fast then and if you wheel back down then you're the goblins but if you hit the ocean or the shore then you turn into a boat and it's all pretty seamless and it's just about navigation it's weird it's honestly it's i think you'd like it nate it flirts with the surreal a shout out to nate's essay his uh little like his list of games on gwg recommends for surreal games i don't think it would quite make that list it's not like surrealism but it's just leaning into its own weirdness unabashedly and with no sense that it has to suffer any video game conventions but also without like letting you get lost in the mechanics like it gives you enough tutorial yeah so th those are my games i don't know if anybody wants to throw anything else out there or if we want to head into our next section on industry news I can't wait for industry news. To the news! The news. Dum, da, da, dum, the dum, news. dum, dum, <laughs> I'm going to take Roger's groan as like, a, yeah, we just got to, you know, go head first into this, into the, into what our main news topic is, which is, of course, uh, new consoles, the Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S uh, and the PS5 uh, coming out. Uh, on the 10th, so the day after recording, uh, that's the Xbox, and then the 12th for the PS5, so a couple days after that. Uh, you know, these are $500 machines. Let's just say they're $500 machines coming in a moment where there's a pandemic. I will also be up front, and it's sort of sheepish that I very kind of haphazardly and out of impulse went into the pre-orders expecting not to be able to get anything and ended up getting an Xbox Series X uh, that ran on my credit card. And then I was like, okay, I guess I'm getting an Xbox Series X. So that's what I'm doing at seven in the morning uh, tomorrow morning is going to my Best Buy appointment to pick up my Xbox Series X, uh, which I will probably install and then immediately go into teaching um, mode. Uh, so I will play no games on it. The rest of the day, it will just stand there a monolith. Okay. But yeah. I'm going to tell you a quick story that's going to be my only contribution to this news <laughs> section. Do it. Because I don't have any money. I'm not going to buy one of these. I'm not going to look at buying one of these. I'm not even going to look at how much they cost. I don't care because it's more money than I have. <laughs> I'm going to stick with playing weird little free games on itch and and nice. and writing about them for the website so instead of having anything interesting to say about this because i'm sure everybody else will have great like console ideas i'm going to tell you that i have a friend who used to bid in auctions on ebay on medieval manuscripts for fun just like for the hell of it to see like, Hey, wouldn't this be funny? And then he won one time and he got uh, this vellum manuscript with like little, little, uh, uh, snakes and stuff like painted on the side from the, from the 12th century or whatever mailed to his house. And he was stuck with it and he didn't know what to do with it. And then he had to pay a whole bunch of money to get it framed and taken care of. 
and that's what's going to happen to you when you go pick up your Xbox Series X tomorrow that you got by accident. It's going to be your manuscript with snakes. And that's my new console story. It's a snake piece of vellum. Thanks, guys. So my argument for why it's not going to be that is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of my Xbox that I already have. Um, either donate it to a local hospital or give it to one of my friend's kids uh, and produce like an ounce of joy for a moment that I that I drink in. Uh, and I'm going to have access to all my other games and they're just going to run a little bit faster. Uh, and I'm going to be like, well, I played five more minutes of game today because it loaded more quickly <laughs> and I got slightly less frustrated and I'm going to be okay with that. And I'm just going to go, hmm. Uh, and pretend that I can tell the difference between 4K and 1080, uh, despite my increasingly failing eyesight. I I think it's you know one of the critiques that I've seen of of the new of the new consoles. I I, I see this particularly of PS5, which I'll tell you I they will get me. They'll have to like pry my PS4 from my cold dead fingers. Like they, I will hold on to that until I cannot play it anymore. I'm surprised Demon Souls hasn't sucked you in, Roger. <laughs> the one actual exclusive for the PS5. <laughs> so the critique is that you know the new games that are that are the majority of the new games that are being advertised for the new ps5 are remakes or they're or they're older games that are just ported into this new system right or they're going on the ps4 as well yeah and so yeah like miles morales like i'm just gonna play it on the ps4 and so i am like i am very angry in some ways because i've i've wanted to play demon souls for a long time and it's on ps3 and my ps4 doesn't have backwards connect you know backwards what is it called backwards compatibility yeah um so yeah like there is this part of me it looks so good though i mean have you seen the the people play through the very beginning of it it's so sexy like it looks really great demon souls you're talking about demon souls yeah Yeah. um and so i'm excited i think at some point i'm gonna i'll do something and i won't like myself for it so um, I mean, I will state as an axiomatic truth that the best thing to do when new consoles come out is wait a year at least uh, and let the kinks get ironed out, um, which is why I started off by saying basically that I'm confessing that I'm getting one of these things and that I'll probably get the PS5 sooner than I should just because, um, which isn't a good reason. Uh, and I think that, you know, we could talk about like ps5's weird marketing over the year where they were like all these exclusives are coming out and then like two weeks ago they were like actually maybe these are coming out on the ps4 too and horizon zero dawn 2 is also coming out on the ps4 even though it's going to be a year after the ps5 launch and so on and so forth which i'm glad they're doing i did the same thing for ps4 like the reason i bought ps4 i had played all of the dark souls games on pc and decided I had to get PS4 so I could play Bloodborne. That was the reason why I got that. And now I'm in the same situation again. And so it's just, I don't know. I, I'm i all about, I love playing console games. I just wish it was a lot. Uh, I, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's totally a money grab and 
you know, all of that stuff. And I just wish that people were a little more, I don't know. It's like, it's like what you said at the beginning, like doing all of this in the middle of a pandemic, it's a little suspect. So. I will openly declare that I am getting it as soon as I possibly can. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will flip the script. Uh, I am, uh, I am a, I am a dad. I have responsibilities. Uh, I have things my money should be going to. Uh, they will not. It will be going to a PS5. I don't. <laughs> I have no other vices. I don't smoke anymore. I don't drink. I don't gamble. I, I don't like cars or nice clothes. This is what I do. This is the one thing where I will launch myself headfirst into reckless debt-based capitalism <laughs> so I can have four more pixels on a game that I probably already own on another system. Uh, I am, I will embrace this flaw fully and I'll enjoy it. And uh, the one concession I made was I will not be buying it for myself. I looked at my wife and said, if we can do this, I would like a PS five for Christmas. That is also selfish because I want to open a PS five on Christmas and have a big moment. Uh, but my one, I will not buy it for myself. At least one other adult has to okay this uh, ridiculous purchase in my household before it can be installed uh, for my own personal whimsy. Well, and just like to be clear to that point, my friend loves this piece of vellum. It's his favorite thing that he owns. <laughs> it's like his favorite possession now. So, so I think, <laughs> uh, seriously though, I think that there is no shame in finding joy where it can be found probably ever, but these days in particular, you know, <laughs> like there's no shame. Like I saw a bird today and that was also really nice. You know, like there's, <laughs> there's these things that happen and I don't think that there's anything wrong with but it could <laughs> give it a few years roger give it a few years uh, i am also a bird watcher and i can tell you bird watching can get weirdly expensive in unexpected ways okay wait like, hang on hang on i know this is <laughs> we cannot go into a bird watching no, i just want to know i just want to know website. one, one unexpected way bird watching can get expensive can i please just hear one please Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, drive, I bird watch in mm. rural areas. Uh, recently, uh, when I was returning from a rural area, I saw a beautiful white egret flying over the highway. I did not see the tire that fell off oh, the big rig no. and slam into my hood, my windshield oh. and my bumper. And so that was my deductible. <laughs> it was unexpected for me. Uh, it seemingly was probably uh, unexpected for the egret. Um, and when I returned with a broken car, my wife uh, also thought that was pretty unexpected. So that was my most unexpected and large scale experience. I have so much sympathy for you, but that's also an amazing story. Like, I'm so happy that's in the podcast. <laughs> I'm also, really quickly, a lot of bird, there are birding festivals where you uh, you get together, you go on to guided tours, and sometimes there are national parks. But a lot of other times, people have paid a lot of money and travel to two exotic locations to go to their local dump because birds hang out at dumps 
And so there are people that go to Arizona, Mexico, Central America, and do not see any beautiful nature. They see the local city dump and they are happy to do it. They will wake up early to do it and they will come away saying it will absolutely was a worthwhile experience to spend the morning at a city dump so they could see a rare raven or COVID. Not a COVID. So, (laughs) right. I mean, maybe also now, I don't know. But it's a lot. I think an unexpected expense is definitely paying for a vacation where you go. I wonder. But this is the thing about hobbies, right? Is that like they accrue all of these little things surrounding them that just add up costs. And I think the thing that will sometimes rub me the wrong way about new console generations, just about the whole logic of generations, is that the way that tech gets sold, right? Is this the planned obsolescence, uh, the way in which developers shift from one system to the next and who gets left behind, but also just the way in which you hear somebody constantly telling you how revolutionary X, Y, and Z is going to be, which is so many, so many revolutions, uh, a monolith or a strange wave-shaped PS5 named object can contain within it. Like, I am looking forward to eventually touching a PS5 DualSense controller. I'm sure I will. it will have a moment of wow for me. I will be excited. Eventually, my hand will get numb from the vibrations and the feedback, and I will turn that setting off. Uh, and that's fine, right? I'm glad that that's out there. But at the same time, I think it's worth talking about these proprietary models. And I will say one thing, and I don't pretend that they're doing it out of the kindness of their hearts, but one thing that I've appreciated about Microsoft with this new Xbox is their commitment for at least a couple of years to not having anything come out that doesn't also come out on the Xbox One. And their emphasis on backwards compatibility from the first Xbox, the fact that every game you get, you can also get for the PC, that's an Xbox game, you know, and their attempt at making an open ecosystem to working with Nintendo a little bit for some releases like Ori and the Will of the Wisp. Um, it's not perfect. And it's still Microsoft. This is still like the only big US company that has actually had a successful antitrust suit against it. Um, you know, but there's something to that. Whereas I hear PS5 keep saying revolutionary. And every time I hear them say that, I just keep hearing closed ecosystem. <laughs> And their game that they're showing off all the time, Demon Souls, is a game that came out, you know, ten years ago on PS3. So it's kind of, it's kind of. Whenever we talk about this innovative, it's it's interesting that we see them so often recycling these games, right? Um, and spending so much time on remasters as opposed to as opposed to putting that effort into new games. So. Which is funny because it does work backwards too. Like I can sit here and sound all like, hey, hey, you know, I don't care about the new console. But 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 the truth is that if the the thing that I would spend that amount of money on would be like if a one of the one of the D and D one E like the first edition like those those original little booklets that came in that wooden box like if if that was on eBay right now I would spend new console money kind of money on on that you know and 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 that kind of stuff and or like the the some of the rarer cartridges and this kind of thing so it it it's interesting how it also doesn't necessarily have to be innovative 
in order to generate the same kind of of market based reaction you know in in people that it actually ends up being that both uh retroactive interests and these these closed circuit claims to innovation actually have more or less exactly the same effect of of driving up what are essentially just two different but really similar collector markets, you know? I think it's also interesting that we, we, we have been focusing on, or not focusing on, but at least mentioning Demon Souls. And Sony should get both credit and negative credit, uh, debt, whatever we want to call it, <laughs> um, for they did, they were the funders of uh, Demon Souls when it came out on the PS3. Like they, the Souls market genre as it is, and it definitely exists because Sony put their money where their mouth is um, with those Demon Souls, and also with the earlier Kingsfield games from some from software. And it feels almost like, hey, we are going to do some revolutionary stuff, but maybe you guys could pay attention to the revolutionary thing we did a decade ago that none of you bought. Although ironically, <laughs> they did not bring it to the U.S. Yeah, that there was a because they Sony thought that it wouldn't work in the U.S., so they got a third-party company that convinced them, and I can't remember who it was to bring it over and do the localization and even the publishing. So Sony didn't publish it in the U.S. Uh, it was published I don't by. Think it was company. Atlas, but. It was one of those companies, though, and it, it, it was. It's funny because obviously it's such a huge thing for them now, and I will say that like. I will eventually have a PS5 because there will be exclusives that get put out on it that I will not be able to not play. I will not be able to like convince myself not to play them. And, you know, it's, I don't know what game it will be, you know, maybe it'll be a Naughty Dog game. Honestly, it's probably going to be that Ratchet and Clank game because I love platformers like that. Uh, and I love the guns in Ratchet and Clank's games. You know, there's, I just need them to recycle that gun where you shoot at a disco ball and all of the enemies start dancing to the disco ball so you can just pick them off when they're dancing. Like, that is what I'm looking for. That everybody else wants, like, flashy graphics on the PS5. I just want my disco ball. And to uh, bring it back really quickly for our uh, listeners, uh, Atlas was the game that brought uh, Demon Souls to the United States. They were the uh, publisher? Yeah. Nice, yeah. Which makes sense because they kind of make their money on bringing games nobody else thinks would be huge hits in the United States to the United States. Yeah, so. yeah I think they brought the Persona game, or not the yeah, the Persona games, uh, maybe the Yakuza games early on. Uh, Shin Megami Tensai right. is uh, another big one that they've uh, brought over. Also, I just we should just at least flag the, the mysterious... Uh, entity that is nintendo uh who does generations in their own wacky way and who might be doing a new generation next year maybe but we don't know what that means they might be doing an update of the switch and whether or not you call that a generation is a whole different thing yeah it's a difficult question because if you look at something like the ds that debuted i don't have the year on me but you went through the original ds and then uh, the 3DS, the new 3DS, the, the the 2DS, and all of those games, mighty the 3DS wasn't backwards compatible with the original DS, but the, the library that you were able to accumulate for that system 
toward the end of its lifespan was mind-boggling, to be quite frank. And so I would hope that they would follow a similar model of that where I don't feel left out of whatever advancements they they do make to a new switch and i hope they just really beef up whatever frame rate and and, but still allow all the older equipment to engage with the newer software i will i will maybe we can close our uh console generation discussion and with each of us maybe sending it off with one thing and i'll say my one thing is uh my prediction for the nintendo switch is exactly what john was saying i think it's going to work like the ds and just keep updating it like that but i think the huge difference that we just now starting to see peaks of is they're going to go for cloud-based uh gaming for the third-party software and you just saw control release uh, as a cloud game where you get you have to pay a tw- play a 20 minute demo in order to even be able to purchase it which is presumably them giving you enough like leeway to say does this does my internet handle this well enough right which is a sensible decision but you know they did that for Assassin's Creed Odyssey on the Switch in Japan uh, which apparently worked pretty well uh, so I think that's the future I think third parties are going to go cloud Nintendo will still do their first party things direct on the console um yeah i'll say one thing that i'd like to see more of uh is um so i one of my uh uh friends was talking to me last night and they had just gotten the new mario kart where it's an actual track right and apparently uh and you have like these remote control cars and you're like driving around and that's syncing up with I mean, this is something that this isn't anything new that Nintendo's done. Uh, they've done this many times where they're connecting sort of like the uh, real world, real world mechanics and games with with sort of the games that are occurring on their on the console. Um, but uh, it was just really amazing. I, I feel like whenever whenever Nintendo sort of lets its creativity sort of uh unleashes it um and tries to create new experiences for the games that's when they're the most interesting so i hope that they do more of that sort of thing should we move to our next section and talk about some childhood youthful memories and uh gaming experience that shaped us into the creatures that we are now um why don't we get that started? And we don't have a particular order for this, but uh, Nate, do you want to get us started maybe? Oh, sure. I mean, so I um, did not grow up in a household where I had a console until I was able to make enough money on my own to buy one, um, which meant that I was spent a lot of time watching other people play video games that I had no idea how to play. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of funny just sort of look at Twitch now and think about like, that was just like, that was just, that was how I got into video games. I thought it was so cool. It was like a moving cartoon. You could just sit and watch people, um, have, have these experiences and go in on these, on these adventures. Um, especially on uh the the 64 the nintendo 64 i distinctly remember um 
someone was playing uh, Super Smash Brothers on the, for the 64 and handed me the controller. And you've got to imagine being a kid who has never held a video game controller before of your own. And the first game you're trying to play is, is, is smash. It's just like, I figured out eventually as Samus that I could, you know, you could fling that beam thing that could grab people. And then you could kind of throw them just kind of by moving, by walking a little bit. And so I just like beam grabbed people just all over the place until I walked off the edge. Um, and so a lot of my first experiences with video games were actually really frustrating um, and alienating. And like, why, why, why does this, uh, you know, this thing exist that, that, I, that I like but, but don't have access to? I did, though, um, we had a computer that ran Windows 3.1. And Windows 3.1 came with Tetris built into it. And I played hours and hours hours and hours of Tetris. I was very good. I, I, there, there are only, there are only a couple games that I will claim like mastery of. I was very, very good at Tetris from, uh, from as, as soon as I started playing it, it was just so relaxing and fun and nice. Um, once I actually started really playing, I think we bought a, my, my brother and I pooled our funds and we bought a GameCube. Um, which was sort of the first console that entered our entered our world. But one of the very first things I got for the GameCube was actually, because we got it well after it had been released and everything, um, there was that disc that I still have, and it's one of my most prized possessions, that GameCube disc that had the four Zelda games on it, plus the little demo for Wind Waker. Um, and that was like... I, I have probably put more hours into that thing than I have any other, including any, including Skyrim, than, than I have any other, the biggest, most open world game I you can think of. I've, I've probably put more time into those four games on that disc. It just made, it, it was such a, a wonderful place to inhabit. And I've gone through and I haven't done speed runs and stuff yet because I don't like to kind of manipulate the ways that the game is broken. Um, I find that kind of almost depressing, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't, I don't like it as much as I like, um, like I'll do, I'll do the three heart challenge a lot, or I'll do the thing where you don't go get the big, uh, sword or where you only use the big sword and you don't have a shield, you know, the whole, there are all these different ways to sort of like self mod the, the game, I suppose. Um, but yeah, and, and a lot of my early gaming experiences were sort of, based on these kinds of, uh, of, of trying to figure out what, um, what was and was not permissible in, in a highly, highly religious environment as well. Um, which was really interesting. I remember, uh, calling the first time I saw some of my, someone I knew playing golden eye calling home and like literally going and getting the phone, borrowing the landline phone and calling home to be like, there is there is blood in this video game. Someone died, and I don't know what to do. And I need to go home now. And 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 so this, you know, and and of course that didn't like. And three years later, I was playing Halo with the pastor's kid, and it was like it was cool because the pastor's kid was doing it. But but it's still a lot of my first experiences with video games were experiences of um, of 
alienation and exclusion and being confused. And so I would say even still to this day with, with, with games, there is something of the, of the transgressive about them, just like playing them. It's, it's, it feels like I'm, I'm getting away with something. Uh, and, uh, I really, uh, I really enjoy that quite a bit actually. Like it's, it's not, it's not an upsetting story. It's a really nice story. I really like it quite a lot. What about you, Roger? Oh, I'm, I'm sort of trying to remember. So a lot of things sort of, as I was thinking about my own memories playing, I wanted, I, I, I feel I really want to talk about, uh, the arcade maybe, and then also early computer PC gaming. Um, so I, one of the, I, you know, I grew up in the eighties, so uh, I, we had this amazing arcade called Aladdin's castle in my mall and, um, all of the great games were there. At one point they had the old school star Wars game where you would just blow up the death star over and over and over again. And you try to get as many points as possible. One of the things that I really remember loving was when they had the X-Men game come in. And this was way before uh, the X-Men were cool at all. I mean, they were always cool, but very few people were reading it. Nobody knew who the X-Men were. It was probably for a lot of people one of their introductions to it. And it was a six-player game, right? And so uh, each person... They did this with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games, too. Um, Basically, just a really basic game. You would just beat beat your your enemies up and each 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 character had a different special power move um some of them were obvious like cyclops had you know his his power his uh optic blast whereas some of them were kind of weird like they didn't know what to do for wolverine so they gave him a laser laser shoot like like his his blades would make a laser arc or something like that logan would have been a really different movie yeah totally absolutely um but you know you it was just really fun to have like get a bunch of friends together go to the arcade right and play this game together because you were it was total co-op right and um so so i had those experiences another game i really remember um i was thinking about doing superhero appearances in games too but decided against it but maybe it'll end up being that um was the superman game it was a two-player game and superman games are not don't have a good track record right they're they're pretty bad um even this early even this game this superman arcade game you could be superman or you could be player two would have a superman that would be like in orange and gray but it would have the same powers like so you'd be two there'd be two supermen flying around which i guess is fine you just (laughs) hit things right and so um I remember loving that game. I spent so much money at that game. And then that's contrasted for me with some of these early PC uh, superhero games. One was this X-Men game I got um, called Madness and Murder World, which was about arcade. It was a horrible game, but I loved it because it just had X-Men. It was like, oh my gosh, here's an X-Men game. And you'd load it, it took forever to load, and you would get control of each of the X-Men and they would each have a special power, but you would try to use those powers to like solve puzzles um the frame rate was horrible you could barely fight anything um and you know there were certain parts where you would need to pick for instance nightcrawler to teleport 
Um, but you could easily die, and I always died in that game because I couldn't do. I didn't know what to do. Um, so it wasn't a great game, but I I, I had fun with it. Um, and then I'm also remembering the Superman, the old old school Superman video game for Nintendo that came out, um, the NES. This is the first Nintendo Superman game. It was horrible. It basically you uh, you started out as Clark Kent, right? And you would go to this, and the graphics were everyone looked like a like a doll cartoon kind of thing. It didn't look anything like Superman for at all. And uh, you basically could 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 jump really high. Uh, you you could use your superpowers, but they all had limited. You know, you could use your heat vision twice in one uh, run through or whatever. Um, and you could fly, but only at certain places. Um, and if you got hit enough, you would turn back into Clark Kent. Um, that was not a great game either. So, uh, I grew up kind of hoping for a great superhero video game and kind of having to make do with what was there. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that's my story. Yeah, we've come a long way with the Spider-Man <laughs> games and everything else, um, especially since that was that the infamous Superman 64 for the Nintendo 64, which, you know. That is a nightmare. It's just a horrible memory. I played a lot of it. <laughs> I, I'm, But I'm somebody who I sat through 10, 10 seasons of Smallville uh, just to see him become Superman, right? And that was a mistake, too. <laughs> <laughs> and on the next episode we will discuss every single episode of <laughs> this uh, is now the smallville john, podcast john what about yeah sorry Gamers people it's actually going to be smallville <laughs> and bird watching and that's it <clears throat> we're gonna just sort of progressively weed out the game talk. and just uh, be flying john, things what about you just flying things yes <laughs> Uh, yeah so i have been a console gamer since jump street i um my first real memories were of my family playing the the atari 2600 which i had sort of came before i was added to the family and then sort of given to me when everyone else had lost interest but what i really want to talk about and i think the thing that dovetails really nicely into our previous topic is uh uh, my sort of worst experience with the with the console wars, if you will. And in 1995, there was not a single human being in America more excited for the Sega Saturn to drop than myself. And this is important because the Sega Saturn was my first experience, my sort of nascent experience of loving something that everyone else thought was obvious trash. Uh, I, I lived in a pretty rural area in, um, Northern Illinois. There was no arcades close by. So that element of gaming was never really, uh, for me. I was the most technologically literate member of my family. So, uh, PC gaming was really not going to be a path that I was going to be able to go down for a few more years, but console gaming was always my thing. It was something easy that I could present to my parents and say, I would like to spend whatever money I earn doing chores on this discrete item that you would purchase and I would bring home and that was it. There was no setup. There wasn't need, you know, calls to computer 
CompUSA to help me with the computer. It was plug, play, ready to go. And so uh, I had I had the NES, I had the Super Nintendo, I was a Genesis kid, and uh, I'll admit I even had a Sega CD. Uh, but I was so excited for the introduction of the 32-bit generation. I had followed it closely in Electronic Gaming Magazine and all of the industry magazines. I was full hype. I am in this to win it. Who is Sony? Why do they have any sort of claim to console greatness? What has Sony ever done? Sega. That's a name you trust. Um, and so I, I worked. I worked hard. I, my first job was the year before uh, high school and the summer before. That was where I put my money in. That's where I got my money. I put it directly into the Sega Saturn. I was so proud. And just starting that system up, it felt like the future. Uh, and it was a great experience. I, for a month before uh, the, the next round of magazines come out and it was summer, so I didn't see a lot of my friends, I had a, a, a great month of just pure gaming bliss. And it was promptly shot in the head when I returned to school that fall and told all of my friends, like, I got a Sega Saturn, boys, and was met with just looks of sadness and sympathy, and no one really knew how to tell me I had made a, a poor decision. I will argue to this day, it was not a poor decision. Virtual Fighter 2 on the Sega Saturn is a if you're a fighting game fan, one of the best experiences. Uh, Sega Rally is, to this day, my favorite racing game off that 32-bit generation. There was a lot of lot of great things that came out of the Saturn that no one wanted to hear about until about 20 years later, which made the immediate owning experience admittedly rather tough. Uh, there was Blockbuster, for uh, those of you who are too young to remember Blockbuster, this is how I got games before there were Humble Bundles and eBay and easy access to uh, uh, early cheap early access. I It was incredibly difficult to find games. Uh, you would have to hunt around at Babbage's and uh, GameStops and... You, <laughs> random uh, family video stores that might have some used copies on sale. Owning a Saturn was the adventure. Any game you got to play was secondary. And if you enjoyed it, that was beside the point because you found a new game to play. And I love it. And I still love the Saturn. And I still think that it is a system that was underloved in its time under-respected since that point, and if a solid collection of those games, I think, would do very well uh, to help show people what was special about that system. And it was Sega at the height of their powers, at their most confident, maybe incorrectly, <laughs> but the Sega Saturn, I think, uh, there's a lot of love for the Genesis, there's a lot of love for the Dreamcast, which I think is even slightly more misplaced, but uh, the Saturn is pretty overlooked and I just remember it was the first time where I actually spent money on something and it was people like no man that's that's not cool like you spend a bunch of money on a not cool thing and because we're in junior high you are not cool 
by the transitive property. So my most enduring moment was the first time that I explicitly understood as a young adult that capitalism has failed me, <laughs> that that marketing and product placement and the promises of corporations were not something that you should take to the bank. And it's a lesson that's done me really well. Uh, I'm glad that I bought a Saturn. I feel I'm a better person for it. I feel I'm a more political person for it. And uh, uh, I had a great time. But the Sega Saturn is by far, I think, the most instructive experience I've had in video games as it, as it pertains to my larger life and worldview. You know, John, I actually had a really... That's great, John. I love that. I had a really good experience with the Sega Saturn, too, that you talking reminded me of. You you guys tell me if this is unique or not, okay? If, if you have any recollection of this, anything like this happening where you grew up. We would go to the mall, and the, the, which, for those of you who don't remember Blockbuster, malls were places that had clothes and stuff that you'd go in and you'd buy them, and you'd go and you'd, you'd, you'd check them out. You'd give them to a person with a little laser, and they'd point the laser at the thing you wanted to buy, and then you'd give them money. Often cash or a check, in fact. I thought they were just empty buildings. <laughs> yeah, they're just... Aren't they just empty buildings teenagers make out in <laughs> at this point? With a, with a, with a Planet Fitness. Um, it's the biggest Planet Fitness ever. Um, no, we'd go to the mall for jeans at Sears. I was a Sears jeans kid and the Sears had a Sega Saturn hooked up to the, like the TV and everything was bolted down so that nobody could do anything to it. But I would get so, and Sears also, Sears like sold like both jeans and hammers, you know? And so when dad needed something too, we'd go to the Sears and I would get so pumped up because as this like somebody who's just starved for, I, I love this stuff, and I, I couldn't really get a hold of a lot of it at home um, until we got a computer that ran like Windows 98, um, and, and then that opened up the whole world, the world of Windows 98 gaming, <laughs> you know, which I shouldn't talk down about. There was some cool stuff. But like um, going to the Sears and playing the Sega Saturn at the Sears, was, that was a big deal. That was because it, it was like, like Roger was, it was like an arcade that you didn't even have to pay for if there weren't any other kids there getting jeans. You know, like it, and you could just sit there and enjoy it. And I remember those as moments of just like bliss, like being so excited about those shopping trips because they were adventures in that way. I had a similar experience uh, at our local Walmart, uh, and they had they had a Nintendo that they had set up like this back in the day. But the problem is that the only game that they ever showed off was pro wrestling, which is. <sighs> It's an okay game. I haven't. I don't know if any of you have played this. It was like the first generation oh, yeah, yeah. wrestling game. It's an okay game. It's fine, um, but not the best Nintendo game by any stretch of the imagination. And but it didn't matter. I would be there for hours. I would stand for out, and you you'd kind of try to rotate people in, or depending on if the other person is a jerk or not, you might be standing there for a long time, right? As they play game after game after game of pro wrestling. Um, but I had, that was the only thing I had at that time. There was, I didn't have a console, uh, until I got a Sega Genesis. And so, yeah, like I would go at least twice a week, you know, I mean, I couldn't go every day. I, I was told not to, but <laughs> I would go for, I would spend a lot of time right in front of that pro wrestling game. So I'm, I'm, I know it pretty well. 
I have a vivid memory. Yeah, I memory. think it's a pretty... Oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, I think it's a pretty ubiquitous experience for children of the 80s and the 90s to really obsess over those moments when gaming intruded on what was otherwise non-gaming moments. Uh, I always really held it up to those things, up to my uh, my father, who, great guy, Vietnam veteran, loved sports. Video games were a very, as far as he was concerned, fringe interest that wasn't really going places. And so anytime I saw a video game in public, it was always, see, it exists. And other people think it is worthwhile, like this fine pizza establishment. So yeah, arcade games, console displays. I think that is, especially if you were into games, and even if you're not, I think it's really memorable for a lot of people. I, I, I've spoken with friends who have no interest in games who remember that the Donkey Kong bongos at a target as like something they remember like, Oh, remember that Donkey Kong game you can play with like by slapping these bongos. And (laughs) for gamers, it's always great to see that in public and then sort of lust after items you might not have. But I think also for, it's just fun if you're just a random person and to see and play with just maybe you only have 30 seconds of video game interest in you. (laughs) <laughs> like you're never going to spend more than 30 seconds. That's a great place to just scratch that itch. If it's, you know, just trying to avoid your family at target. It's funny. So many of these stories for us are just about like being able to encounter sort of games in the wild in a way that doesn't cost you a bunch of money. You know, I had that same experience of crouching in Sears and playing Nintendo 64, you know, locked in some clear plastic box I vividly remember playing uh, Super Mario World uh, before the Super Nintendo came out uh, on a Super Nintendo in a FAO Schwartz toy store uh, and just having it be a kind of revelatory experience. I never got a Super Nintendo. I so badly wanted one. I got a Sega Genesis in like 95 or something or 94 maybe. And it was... And I... I swear, my mother thought she was giving me a Super <laughs> Nintendo. You know, <laughs> it it was definitely a garage sale thing. I imagine that it was sold at the garage sale at the garage sale because some kid got grounded and their mother sold, you know, their Sega Genesis as punishment or something, and I and then I got it, and it was supposed to be a Super Nintendo. But I loved the Genesis, and I did love it. Uh, but I will say, it is the last console that i owned uh until getting the ps3 pretty late in the ps3's life cycle i was a pc gamer for years and you know part of that had to do with i spent a long time wanting to be a game programmer and went in the college for computer science and then you know did that obviously smart career choice of switching to an English major. Um, And, uh, you know, I really loved thinking about the guts of games and it was just easier to do that with a PC, right? Like, especially when you're talking about Windows 3.1, you're talking about DOS games where you could edit the sys init files and mess around with the files of games uh, and try even modding it. Like I was doing, I remember when Unreal Tournament came out, the first Epic, one of those first Epic games. Uh, I was making mods for that and doing level design for that, thinking that this was going to be sort of the future for me. But uh, 
you know, I, I think the two experiences that really capture what it meant for me to game and to be a PC gamer and to, you know, were one, uh, discovering the game Daggerfall, which was the second Elder Scrolls game after the first one was Arena. Daggerfall came out in 1996. Uh, it has a procedurally generated set of like landscapes in a continent that is bigger, if I'm not mistaken, than any game that has been made, uh, you know, by in the Elder Scrolls series since. It's much bigger than Skyrim. It's bigger than the rest of these games because they relied on this procedural generation, and they didn't use 3D models except for the environment. They just used 2D. Uh, pixel art for the enemies and the characters but i loved it and i never even got close to finishing the game i never even tried i just i stole things from houses i delved into the dungeons i did all of these different things and it's not like i hadn't played a bunch of rpgs before i had played a bunch of the might of magics i had played ultima underworld but there was something about the scope and about knowing that i would never visit every place in this world no matter how hard i tried that just opened something up in me. And I found myself trying to figure out how to do 3D graphics and 3D environment stuff in, I think, QBasic and then in C++. Um, never got all that far. Um, but there was just something about that game that I still honestly think it's the same wonder that you get when you play Skyrim. And I think that was the first game that they managed to really produce that in, you know, and before the fallouts, before the Skyrim, before uh, Oblivion, uh, it was, you know, Daggerfall, and the class system was pretty deep, the item system was pretty deep, uh, you you had Thieve Guild quests, if I'm remembering correctly, there were, it was a deep game that seemed ahead of its time, and yet, honestly, there was all those, like, quality of life improvements were not there yet the game crashed there were lots of things you had to get used to the combat atrocious is putting it nicely <laughs> you know but on the flip side i don't know i'd played might of magic games i'd played ultima underworld I, I was used to some jank uh so i would have to say that the jankiness of daggerfall horrified me like i i had moments I had moments with that game that really forced me to confront the emptiness of my existence. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was like first of all the like the combination of the three D and the two three and the two D the two D characters and the three D environments were like I would come up to these especially like vampires vampires freaked me out um <laughs> and i don't know if it was because of the way they sounded they but or or what um or the fact that you would like walk around them and they'd be flat and they would kind of turn with you but they'd still be flat there was just this weird i and i think it was i think it was this kind of this kind of sense that it was in the middle of things it was actually doing a lot of stuff ahead of its time that made this game so fascinating and when it did, when it did glitch, like I remember so many times running in a dungeon and then falling through the dungeon into a lower part of the dungeon 
and there would be these crazy monsters there and I would just die or I would get lost in the dungeon because who knows where the, these dungeons would go. There was no order to them. They were just these crazy, I I uh, remember comparing them to like a Lovecraftian like like labyrinth of sorts where like there is no order to it. You just keep wandering forever in the darkness kind of thing. And so that game, uh, I, I, I played it actually my freshman year of college. I remember it quite a bit. All of our friends did. And it was, it was quite the game. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was in a way it's a kind of void, right? Because there, so much of it was a tech demo. The narrative was there, but it was so incidental and it was in such a wide world that holding on to the narrative threads was not an impossible task, but it might as well have been. And so you just had to make your own fun. And it was like before Grand Theft Auto, before, you know, these other sandbox games, this game really like produced this playground that you just had to figure out for yourself. And, you know, the other game I want to just talk, talk about that I guess is almost the inverse experience here because it was the probably still one of the tightest games imaginable in terms of its gameplay mechanics and its design, which is Counter-Strike. And specifically, playing Counter-Strike on my high school LAN, playing Counter-Strike. I was in a computer science high school program, uh, you know, so I took all these programming courses in high school, and they brought in these community college teachers. And, uh, but, you know, these community college teachers, I didn't understand anything about the, the labor market of academia at the time. Uh, you know, it's worse now, but it wasn't great then either. And so, you know, these people did not have a huge investment for them of like, they were coming in, this was a side gig for them. And so they'd come in, they'd talk to us maybe for like 15 to 20 minutes and they'd be like, okay, go do your thing. And we would finish our programming assignment in like 15 minutes because all we really wanted to do was play Counter-Strike and play, you know, and I think we played Half-Life, which kind of, you know, Counter-Strike was a mod of as well, but it was all about Counter-Strike and it was all about learning those maps, uh, memorizing every little piece of like the equipment getting in teams and just shouting at each other. We didn't have headsets. We were just shouting at each other across the room. We tried to divide up the computers in a way where it made sense for the teams, but it never worked. And, you know, we had the, like, the head of our computer science program was a super lovable guy that just died a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, but he would come in and he would just curse at us. Are you guys playing that game again? You know, um, throwing a bunch of four-letter words. Uh, and we're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, did you finish your assignment? Like, yeah, he's like, oh, okay. He also had to manage the network, and I think we were single-handedly <laughs> slowing down, like, grading because of the traffic on it. Uh, but, oh, my God. It was, like, I'm not a multiplayer game gamer anymore. I, like, I will sometimes play multiplayer or co-op every once in a while with a friend. Um, but I don't do it a ton. But some of my fondest memories are just being yelled at because I like missed a shot and my entire team went down because of my one missed shot because that's what Counter-Strike still is. It's just like precision. Yeah. But yeah, I could tell a number of other like weird stuff. Like I remember playing Command and Conquer uh, modem to modem, uh, which is a phrase that I think has probably been rightfully lost to history. 
you know, dialing up your friend, you know, and all of this was contingent upon getting your friend's parents and your parents to give you an hour to two hours in which you were not, you know, they weren't going to use the phone. Usually this happened between one and three in the morning. They did that. uh, My friends did that when they were playing, they were playing Doom. That was before Quake was the one that really started the sort of multiplayer where you would go to a server, but like it was modem to modem, I think most of the times with, with Doom. Um, and I also remember my friends in high school playing Command and Conquer. We would have like LAN parties. I remember people rolling into LAN parties with like tower PC, like a multiple tower PCs. Like everybody would bring laptops were hardly even something that you would, you would think about. Everybody would wheel in their tower and their monitor. And some people would even like bring their own table so that there was space for all of their crap you know, and, and to have enough and oh, you'd be one cable short and then you'd have to go and like, see if anybody had an extra cable. Is there an extra cable in the junk drawer somewhere? Like it, it was really kind of a beautiful, kind of a beautiful thing. One of the things I obsess over, I'm a librarian uh, by trade and is preservation is uh, obviously one of our core values. But uh, I think it's interesting because all four of us represent uh an interesting moment in time where we are in real time experiencing the, the, the growth of an artistic art form from the ground up and also the enjoyment of that art form and all the sort of micro little movements that we've been describing between, oh, we get to enjoy this art form by going to a Sears to avoid our father or like doing a lot of moving and getting a card table. There's all these ranges of uh, we as a species learning to enjoy this art form that are largely ignored and largely sort of put to the side of history because we focus on the developers and the games and the technology and we, and we kind of miss out on the, the ways in which we experience video games, whether that's in uh, an arcade, PC, console, but there are these lost moments that are never discussed outside of places like this where we just don't have that when it comes to, there's nobody recorded what the first person, when they reacted to a petroglyph, no one was like, oh, wow, Grog lost it. He just, he really flipped his loincloth. Or the weird experimental moments where it's like, hey, we tried to drum on this log and then on a frog, and it was very upsetting and we never decided to do it again. We just don't have those reactions. And I think it's great that, we are in a group that gets to experience that for the first time. And those moments are, you know, few and far between historically when an entire new genre of art is created whole cloth and experienced widely. And just as a, maybe a little shout out to some content we're going to be publishing later this week, we've got a review coming out of the Netflix documentary series, a uh, high score, uh, which, you know, I think, I was a little skeptical of, but, you know, the episode I've seen in the review that we're publishing, it actually, you know, seems like a pretty compelling sort of image of different moments of gaming with some unexpected pairings, like pairing Star Fox and Doom together as part of the transition to 3D gaming. So heads up for that on Wednesday or Thursday, I think. But maybe let's get to our final section, which is... Uh, you know, we're all, we're librarians, we're... Uh, teachers we have other interests and so the last thing we're going to go out on every show is just 
GWG recommends recommendations of non-gaming stuff uh, to go check out and imbibe. So, John, why don't you give us your recommendation? All right. So I am going to recommend to you my current favorite stress relief piece of media, uh, and that is AEW Dynamite on TNT. Uh, I am a tremendous pro wrestling fan. I love it. I've loved it my entire life. It is easily one of the three things that I am an expert in and I am not counting my career or my family in that. Um, AEW Dynamite, if you if you don't know, uh, pro wrestling is having a bit of a moment right now. We are, are we, the industry is going through a, a renaissance uh, creatively and in terms of access. And it's a really great place, a really great uh, artistic movement to be part of. That being said, it can often be difficult to find the good stuff. A lot of it is overseas and requires uh, some tolerance for poorly translated Japanese or Spanish. But you can see really tremendous pro wrestling every Wednesday night on TNT uh, or whatever streaming service that you have that carries TNT. And All Elite Wrestling Dynamite is a tight two hours of wrestling that celebrates everything about wrestling. It has the top athletes from across the world. So you get to have a great sampling of Japanese strong style wrestling, Lucha Libre, American style slash sort of Southern style wrestling, uh, quickly improving women's division, the, the writing on the show and the way that they, uh, book their matches uh, credits the audience's intelligence and attention to detail in two hours. It will it is a show that will provide you with at least nine solid storylines on any given week, maybe eight, depending on uh, what they're trying to build to. And it is a bunch of people who love what they do, doing it at an incredibly high level. And uh, in a time where there's a lot of enmity, and conflict and divisions happening in communities and in families and in nations uh, and between nations, uh, it can be a little hard to take a step back and enjoy content that isn't, um, that is conflict-based, but it doesn't actively avoid politics, but it finds it's two hours of conflict that you can feel okay about because at the end of the day, they all know each other, they all like each other, and they work really hard to keep each other safe, which is if you don't know much about pro wrestling, we we know it's predetermined. Um, Much like Game of Thrones, we understand it's not real. Uh, But (laughs) it is people uh, trying to tell a story through movement, through... uh, uh, interviews through non-traditional storytelling means and coming together and doing it live on television uh, with no net, protecting each other. It is absolutely my happy light that I turn into every Wednesday night. And uh, if you haven't experienced pro wrestling before, this is a, a perfect place to hop on. And if you hopped off in the 80s or the 90s because it was kind of gross and misogynistic and maybe way more right leaning than you were happy with. Uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with the international flavor of these athletes. Uh, They um, 
they openly uh, embrace their LGBTQ athletes um, who, uh, who perform on the show. It is a celebration of all things pro wrestling, and uh, it is absolutely worth your time if you have two hours. Even if you only have ten minutes, uh, tune in. Uh, you don't need to invest a ton of time in pro wrestling to get something fun out of it. And, yeah, if you just like people doing flippy flops and, like, flexing and having conflicts that aren't going to tear your family apart, it is an absolutely great program. Awesome. That sounds great. I don't. Th- I think the last wrestling I watched uh, had a, was it Randy Macho Man Savage still going strong. So I think that probably was that period of like the early '90s. Um, yes, I mean the Macho Man lives inside all of us. Um, but uh, give it another try. It's going to be a lot different than you remembered it. But also, I think uh, you'll be surprised at how much more layered content there is um to the product than there was 20 30 years ago very cool nate this what week, do you have the recommend recommending to, us? to you some louisiana sludge metal because you don't have enough of that in your life right now i guarantee it so the phenomenal band thou from baton rouge um has a tendency to collaborate with other artists. They've done some amazing work with bands like The Body. Um, But they collaborated this time around with uh, a sort of a a more atmospheric folk artist named Emma Ruth Rundle uh, to make an album called May Our Chambers Be Full. And it is like your favorite... It's it's it it hits that sweet spot of nostalgia for for like grunge's best moments, sort of K Records best releases of the '90s, um, together with just absolutely you know detuned, hard hitting obscenity. It's a, it's a masterpiece, and it's very loud, but also very beautiful. Like even if you're not, because I recognize that for sort of the non-metal uh, folks out there, sometimes the harsh vocals are not everybody's favorite thing. And this is a record with some really phenomenal rhythm work, but also some really, really just gorgeous vocal, uh, vocal action. And um, I think everybody should check it out. That sounds great. Uh, I also... Never knew I would uh, hear the phrase. <laughs> it's sludge a very metal good so album. Like, if, uh, if you're not a big metal fan, their other stuff is gonna be like real, like, uh, and is awesome. But but this particular album has has some really really phenomenal uh, vocal work in it that I I think would be attractive to to uh, a broader audience. It's real. It's real good. Roger, what's on the what's on the queue? I am going to recommend Kim Stanley Robinson's new novel, The Ministry for the Future. Uh, when when this novel was first announced, I think it was right before the pandemic. And certainly as the summer progressed and we saw all the wildfires in the West, they were pretty close to me. I wasn't sure I was going to read this novel. I had read, I actually read his Science in the Capital trilogy over the summer. For those of you who who don't know, Kim Stanley Robinson writes sort of um, kind of hard science fiction 
one like five minutes into the future kind of science fiction. He's known, I would say, for two two trilogies. The first is the Mars trilogy, which talks about the terraforming and colonization of Mars over three books. The second trilogy is the Science in the Capital trilogy, which is all about climate change and the way. But it's also sort of a legal kind of uh, kind of thriller about uh, the NSA and how scientists can engage in political processes and try to affect change politically. So it's kind of a kind of a an interesting he 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 delves into an interesting span of of issues throughout his novels from you know science fiction in space to uh something that wouldn't be out of uh you know if you saw it as an episode of the west wing it would it would be pretty it would seem pretty similar to that you know and so this new novel i i started reading it kind of kind of dreading uh what he was going to talk about because Kim Slater Robinson is is known as as a kind of optimist, and I feel that he has been his optimism has been challenged, especially over the last few books. You can kind of see that, especially in a book like Aurora, um, that came out a couple like I think in twenty fifteen, and in this one particularly, it starts out the first chapter is is this horrifying um, description of a killer heat wave that occurs in India and kills 20 million people. And the way that the world responds to it takes up the rest of the novel. Two things that are really interesting to me about this novel, one is for people who are kind of, uh, who are really into Marxist philosophy. This novel is dedicated to Frederick Jameson and it's very much a dialogue. Frederick Jameson was his, was Kim Stanley Robinson's teacher at Duke when he got his, I, I think he got a PhD in English. It was San Diego and lit back when Fred was still at San Diego. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so, but what's interesting is this novel very much is a dialogue with, with Jameson. For those of you who are into that, there are references to Hegel, to other philosophers. There is actually the phrase, this kind of made me geek and it's a very niche thing. So, whatever, but he actually uses the phrase accidental megastructure in it, which made my Benjamin Bratton heart geek out. Um, so there's that part of it. The other thing that's really interesting about this novel is that there are there are some main characters. There are, there are two main characters. One is this man who survived the heat wave uh, that, that descended upon India in the first chapter that I just talked about. And the other is the head of this ministry that emerges uh as a kind of response to how do we uh how do we combat climate change and how do we do it and so what's fascinating about this novel though is that it's not a sort of linear story it's made up of all of these documents and frequently you will get chapters that are like slices of life that are taking place throughout the world and um, sometimes they're, they're quite jarring because those of you who like want this sort of ongoing story, you get some of that, but it's, it's less than you would, you would expect to get. And so um, what, what's interesting about it is that it really gets, gives you this sense that everyone is going through this, this experience at the same time and they're doing it in very different ways. And so 
I I don't know. I came out of the experience really, really valuing sort of reading this this novel at this moment in time, particularly given the COVID crisis, and felt that the way that he approached this subject matter in terms of climate change, it was very harrowing. But it ended up being quite quite uh, optimistic. Some of my colleagues who read it too were very uh, were being critical of how. Uh, almost utopian he is towards the end. However, uh, you know, I the last line was just very inspirational to me. He he's it says something like um, keep going. Just whenever you feel like there's an issue, just keep going, keep going because it never ends. And so like that kind of that kind of spirit is is woven throughout the novel. And I feel for those of us who see the world is falling apart in front of us right now. Um, reading a novel in which certain things eventually start to work, but it takes time, um, is a really good, I think, antidote to the feeling that things will continue to be crappy forever. So, I think that's a great note to actually end on. So rather than try to throw something else on top of that, uh, I just want to say, yeah, I think... You know, I have a certain fondness for Utopia uh, that is a little too public. Uh, but, you know, I think that notion of just like building something within a crisis, from a crisis, knowing that there's probably more crises ahead, but being able to pick up the pieces. And you know what? Like, in a way, that's what Gamers with Glasses is. Gamers with Glasses was made during a crisis. It's born of a crisis, uh, personal crises, <laughs> world crises, all intersecting uh, in a haphazard fashion. But, you know, I, I can't speak for all of us, but I'll just say that I'm really happy uh, to be on this podcast with you guys and to just be, you know, writing about video games, thinking about video games, talking about video games, having fun thinking about video games with you guys. And we'll have another episode in a couple of weeks and expect some more news about our special episodes on Spider-Man Miles Morales and on Immersive Sims. And maybe in the meantime, go play one of those amazing Immersive Sims. Play your Dishonored, your System Shocks, your Bioshocks, all your other Shocks, Looking Glass games, etc. And be well and take care. 